Have you ever been near that principal that says they're teacher-centered instead of student-centered, and the people around them almost gasp and wonder how they can say something like that? Or have you ever been near the teacher that says, I can't do that because, or the student that says, I can't do that because, and they view constraints as a bad thing? Or what about school administrators asking teachers for feedback during evaluations? asking questions instead of giving answers and direction so that they can better empower those they serve. Hey everyone, Dr. Jones here with another episode of Seeing to Lead. And this episode has me as a guest on Karen Dudek Brannon's podcast, De Facto Leaders. I had a great conversation with her covering a wide range of topics relating to all the things I just mentioned. The fact that Being student-centered isn't always the most effective or successful way to run a school because you can increase your impact by centering your energy and your focus on supporting, engaging, and empowering teachers. I also talk about a positive mindset and how constraints can be viewed as a bad thing, but with a positive outlook and mindset, they can actually lead to more creativity better solutions to those consistent problems that show up in schools. And in this episode, I give some questions that all leaders should be asking those they serve to better understand how they can empower others to be more successful. Look, I had a great conversation, like I mentioned before. So what I'd like you to do is after you listen to this, make sure you check out Karen's podcast as well. She has fantastic guests and content all the time. But I've said enough here because I definitely say a lot more on this episode with me as a guest on De Facto Leaders. Let's get to getting better on Seeing to Lead. Dr. Chris Jones here, and welcome to Seeing to Lead, a show designed to help leaders increase their ability to effectively support, engage, and empower their staff through intentional practices so that they create an environment where everyone reaches their greatest level of success. On Seeing to Lead, communication rules the day as we hear voices from both teachers and leaders in an effort to examine perspectives, highlight misunderstandings, and provide steps to ultimately bridge the gap between what teachers need and provide through thought thoughtful dialogue. This show is about amplifying voices, creating understanding, and providing information to help everyone continually improve. I want to personally thank you for taking the time. Now, let's get to getting better. Hey, everybody. It's Dr. Karen, and welcome to episode 119 of the DeFacto Leaders podcast. In this episode, I am going to share my conversation with Dr. Chris Jones, and we're going to talk about what it means to be a teacher-centered leader in K-12 education. So obviously, I'm using the word teacher-centered, but really we're talking about any leader who is empowering people who are working directly with students. This conversation was so much fun to record. I felt like it could have gone on for hours. And there are so many really interesting analogies and just concepts that we discussed that can be applied to so many different things. 
A funny story that I'll share before I get into Dr. Jones's background is that when we were planning out what we were going to talk about in this episode, as well as when I was a guest on his show, is that I actually had a couple really important decisions that I was kind of sitting on and procrastinating. And some of the things that he shared with me in our conversation helped me to make a decision and move forward and really reframe some of the things that I had been sitting on for months, honestly. So I think this conversation will be really useful to you if you are figuring out how to solve any really challenging problem that seems unfixable. So to get into his background, Dr. Jones has been an educator in Massachusetts for 22 years. His experience in the classroom ranged from 8th to 11th grade, working in an urban setting. A portion of his time was spent opening a high school division for an expanding charter school. He has just finished his 14th year as a building administrator at the time that this interview was recorded, and he's also the vice president of the Massachusetts State Administrator's Association. True to his why of improving educational experience for as many people as possible, he is the principal of Whitman Hanson Regional High School in Whitman, Massachusetts. He's the author of Seeing to Lead, a book that provides strategies for how modern leaders can and must support, engage, and empower their teachers to elevate student success. He vlogs weekly about continuous improvement. He is the host of a podcast called Seeing to Lead, and he uses this as a way to amplify educators' voices in an effort to improve education as a whole, and he has quite an impressive background, so I encourage you to check out the show notes for more information about all of the amazing work that he's doing. In this episode, we cover a wide range of topics relating to how leaders can better empower their staff, including what it means to be teacher-centered and why being student Student-centered isn't always the most effective way to run its school. We talk about the concept of constraints when you are leading others. Are constraints a bad thing or can they actually lead to more creativity? And how can school leaders guide their staff without micromanaging them? Should school administrators ask for feedback during evaluations? Does the feedback only go one way? And if so, what questions should they be asking to understand how they can empower staff? There's so many great tidbits of information, so definitely stick around until the end so that you can take as much as you can from this conversation and also learn more about where you can connect with Dr. Jones and get some tools that you can use for solving those problems that seem unsolvable. So now please enjoy this interview with Dr. Chris Jones. Today, I am joined by Dr. Chris Jones. So thank you so much for being here with me today. Oh, thank you. I appreciate you having me on. I'm I'm excited to talk to you today. Yes, likewise. So I know that we will have a number of different topics that we're both really excited about. So I thought you could just start off by just telling us a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are right now. Sure. Um, it's been quite the journey. <laughs> when, I, when I look back on it, it hasn't it hasn't been a straight line, that's for sure. I um, uh, Education is a second career for me, and the career path that I looked like I was going to be taking and staying on 
before education was being a coppersmith. And um, uh, I was convinced by family and friends that I should be teaching. And, um, you know, I, I said to them all the time, especially my mother, who gives me a hard time about it to this day. Um, but I always said to her, look, you know, I I went to high school. I know what high schools look like. And I will teach anything to anybody as long as they're willing to learn. I'm not interested in doing discipline 80% of the time and only getting to talk about content 20% of the time. And so they continued to convince me that I should be teaching people. We would, I would take my family and friends and people on tours of American Civil War battlefields. And they said just the way I approached the topic and talked about different things that I should be doing that. Well, um, I, I went back to school to become a teacher. And the first job I received, I remember calling my mother all excited about it. You know, it's that first job you land. It was teaching history at an alternative high school. And so for your listeners who may not know what an alternative high school is, it's usually the last stop for students um, that basically don't fit the traditional mold of what high school is. So they're there because um, all day, every day in the typical school setting is not working for them for whatever reason, Um, whether it's personal reasons, whether it's behavioral reasons, whether it's learning issues, um, just different things like that excuse me but um she laughed as soon as i said that because typically also what's what is um seen to be part of that is the idea of discipline and um i'll tell you i i started that and i never looked back i absolutely loved it i i hit it off with the students um i got along with them well and taught them some things along the way um and then i went and ended up teaching in the inner city um, because I was just drawn to those types of issues and those those types of students, I think, because I did not enjoy my high school experience. Um, I did what I had to do when I got through high school, but uh, I I was not impressed with schooling. Let's put it that way. And so that plays into my current why that I've had for quite some time and just been able to vocalize over the past few years the idea of improving the educational experience for everyone involved um, by being purposeful, acting with integrity and building character. And so um, along those lines, I was I was teaching for a while, got the opportunity to move up to administration. And, you know, at first, I still remember where I was sitting when I was offered to go with the principal that I was currently serving under. Um, and it was a difficult decision for me at first. It was exciting, but it was difficult because I didn't want to stop having an effect on students. And I felt that age old saying that you hear, you know, the further up you move, the further away from the students you move, which there is a degree of truth to that. But then I started to think about I'd be able to affect a greater number of students because while I'd be moving out of the classroom, I wouldn't be moving that far. I was going to be an assistant principal and a special education team chair. And so I figured I would see a greater number of students than I typically would as a teacher in a classroom. And then the move to principal was another story. But what I found along the way was that by focusing on the teachers and becoming teacher-centered, that I could affect even more students in a positive fashion. So I didn't have to walk away from the students, per se. Um, I just had to make sure my focus was in the right place so that I could still have the positive effect on students that I wanted to. And that's where I find myself today. Um, I'm the principal of a regional high school, 
And I continue to focus on teachers and making sure the teachers feel supported, engaged, and empowered in their work. Because I don't want a teacher on a Sunday night dreading going to work the next day. You know, so often you hear about people getting upset on Sundays. They they waste the whole second half of their Sunday because they're worried about getting up and going to work the next day. Now, I'm not looking for cartwheels on Monday morning, but if a teacher comes in and they're in a decent mood about coming to work and they're not like, oh, God, it's Monday, but they're like, oh, OK, I have to go to work tomorrow. When they come in and they're afforded the opportunity to be engaged in their work and do what they do best in a passionate way, there's no way students don't learn. It's a better environment for everybody involved. And that's where you keep people engaged in schooling, as it were, and you get them empowered to make changes that are needed in today's educational system to address the issues that students of today, not of 10 years ago, not of 20 years ago, are facing and help them be more successful, whatever they define success as. Yeah. Oh, there's so much that you just said that I could go with. Um, I would, I want to dive into the idea of being teacher centered because it seems like there's trends with just what's, what's the big push. And it's, there is a big focus on things being child led and student centered. And of course it should be about the students and the kids, but why do you think it's, I I don't want to say more important because it's not a contest, but why is it so important to make sure that it's teacher centered? Why is that your main area of focus? You kind of explained that, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on what happens when things are not teacher centered. Sure. Because I, I mean, I, when I sit around with other principals and I go, Oh, well, I'm teacher centered. They're like, what? You can't be a leader and say that out loud. You're about the students. Well, there's a couple things. Um, It's my big domino. The big domino that if I push that domino over, all the other dominoes are going to fall into place the way they need to. And other things are going to become either easier to accomplish or even unnecessary to focus on because they be they get done themselves. And that's that's what I try to do by being teacher-centered. A couple of things to understand with teacher-centered. Teacher-centered does not mean the teacher is always 100% right. And no matter what happens, the teacher's right. Um, that doesn't mean that there are still expectations that we hold and there are still, there's still the main expectation that the student benefits the most. So while I support the teacher and help them with their, with their job, with whatever they're trying to do, the, the outcome needs to be increased student learning, improve student outcomes and success. And so it's not always that nice. Oh, don't worry about it. If you come in late, don't worry about it. If you're not getting done what you need to do. Don't worry about it if you're not, you know, giving feedback on assessments because I'm teacher-centered. That's not what it's about. Teacher-centered is giving teachers the tools they need to be successful so that they can realize or reimagine their passion for their craft. Everybody got into teaching for a reason. And after a couple of years, they move away from that reason. They forget about that reason because the grind happens. The age-old system of education that we all tend to fall into. Well, in fighting that, that's being part teacher-centered because I don't want people to fall into the same old. I want to push people to get better every day, to continually improve their craft so that those benefiting from their craft are actually the winners in the end. 
you, you said something interesting. You said, you know, you don't want to make it a competition. Often people do. And, and one of the pitfalls to that is when a leader is sitting across from a teacher and they're having a discussion about student expectations or education in general. And as soon as the leader says, well, this is what's best for students, they automatically create a problem because they make it sound like the teacher doesn't have what's best for students in mind. And I, I, I think that often teachers do have what's best for students in mind. There are times they don't, but it's not that they're necessarily doing that on purpose. Nobody comes to work in the morning saying, you know what? I think I'm going to brutalize some kids today. Nobody, <laughs> yeah. nobody does that. Yeah. And so as soon as the leader sets up that relationship where it makes the teacher feel that that's what the leader thinks about them, there's a problem. And then that teacher's not going to be happy where they are. And if you're not happy with what you're doing, you're not going to do a good job at it. It's not like you can fake it. Um, and so that's why teacher-centered is is really important to me. It sets the teachers up to do the best job they can, live in the reason that they got into education, because I'm sure when you talk to teachers, nine out of 10 teachers got into education for an altruistic reason, right? They oh, yeah. want to make the world a better uh-huh. place. They're going to save every kid. Um, let them live in that and strive to do that. And then just kind of put up the guardrails to help them do that. Yeah, the guardrails concept is really interesting. And it's something that I have contemplated as I've taken my own career path. I And I, I totally relate to what you're saying about feeling like you're leaving, feeling like you're not as connected when you do get into a different position where you're not directly working with students. I've definitely had that feeling before where it's, am I too far removed? Do I still really know what's going on? Am I you know, again, it's like, it's like a different role. And you think, do I really, am I really making the impact? Because I'm now I'm mentoring people who are in the schools. And it is that whole broader impact versus direct impact where you're in there and you see you, you do something and you say something to a student and you see, oh, they were, they were working on this skill and now they got it. You know, you don't necessarily get that when you're in a leadership position. But the the concept of when you're when you're thinking about it from that angle and putting up the guardrails as a person who when you're when you're in a position where you have to make all these kind of decisions the concept of boundaries and guardrails and expectations can be really interesting because I found that sometimes people want you to tell them your expectations. And sometimes that can be a good thing. And sometimes that can be a crutch. If you don't give them any expectations, they have no boundaries and constraints. And people, when you say the word constraints, um, in in the interview that we just did with, um, on for your show, I talked about an interview from the Tim Ferriss show with Jerry Seinfeld and his creative process. This brings up a thought that about Seth Godin, something he said, where he said that if you have a creative person and you have no constraints put on you, you can't be creative. So you actually have to put boundaries in place so that people have some decisions made for them so that they have the energy to be creative. So when you're trying to do that as a leader, put some constraints in place without it feeling 
restrictive without people feeling like you're micromanaging them, but at the same time, putting enough structure in place so that they don't have all these things to worry about so that they can get into that space of, you know, let me think about what works, but also let me put my own flair to it. I mean, how do you do that? What are some ways that you've seen that play out in your experience? Sure. That's, and that's a great question because that, that's so true. One of the things that leaders have to keep in mind is they have to be the ones to cast the vision. They have to be the ones to say where the ship's going. They have to define the goal, so to speak. And they have to clearly define the goal, but not the process. So people will get to a goal in different ways because you give them the freedom and the creativity to get there and support them along the way. And the way you stay away from micromanaging is you don't tell them how they're going to get there. Now, that varies, right? It's just like you're sitting in front of a classroom where you have the student that you can give an assignment, they can go fly, do their own thing. And you have the student over there that is like, I don't even know where to go after picking up my pencil. And so along the way, you have to help people with certain steps. So um, one of the things we did, maybe this will help illustrate it a little bit, because we were working on creating a vision of the graduate um, for our high school. Well, we had started that early, and then COVID happened, and we stepped away from it. But what happened after that, I think, tells the story. So the activity we did when we first started it was I had people reconnect with why they're into teaching. And so I shared my why with the faculty, and then I broke them into groups to talk to each other about their whys. And then we came back, and some people highlighted different things. And then I had them break into groups again and take their whys and pull out themes that seemed to be something that went along with all the whys that tied them together in their group. And then list those few themes that came out. And then we came back together as a whole faculty, and we shared the themes with each other. And so then along the way, I'm telling them, okay, so now that we've got these themes, what we want to do is we want to make these themes real and something that everybody, everybody understands and sees the value in. And so we broke into them again, and I told them to create a story from the themes. So now each group has these themes, and they have to create a story that highlights those themes because we all learn better from stories. We remember stories better. And I went from group to group and helped where I needed to help, um, said, oh, did you think about this? Maybe ask some clarifying questions. So I gave them the ability to be creative, but I told them where we were going, the goal, and then I made sure I was present to give the individual support, be it a question, a clarifying question, or a question asking for more, or saying re-clarifying the directions for them. I could do that. And then we got together and we had the stories. And when people read these stories, everybody was part of this. So everybody's why became part of the vision of the school. Everybody could see themselves as an individual in the whole. So we did that. We kept all that. And then COVID happens, right? So our focus goes somewhere else. Well, we just picked this process up again. I picked up all the documents that I kept with the stories, with the whys, with everything. And we were able to put together a vision of the graduate that everybody looked at and went, yeah, that's what that's what we want to be about. Um, because everybody had a piece of that, they had the creativity, and then 
that goal we got to, and then I only had to put that out and then, or, or list that out with the leadership team and then put it out to the rest of the faculty and say, give me some comments on this. And there were very few, I don't agree with that. I don't need to, well, there actually, I don't, there were no, I don't agree with that. There were a few, well, what about this word? What about this word? But it was down to the wordsmithing and it made that whole process so much more personally owned by everybody and the outcome so much easier because we talk about that big domino to put out the final product of it because along the way they had the creativity to access what they had as a person as an individual to become part of the whole towards a well-defined goal of what we had to do with help along the way as the guardrails yeah that's that's so interesting how you almost have to make yourself invisible or very be very stealth about it. Um, my husband and I joke around about the guy from um, Office Space, you know, when they're doing the interviews and he's like, they're like, what do you actually do? And he's talking about how he communicates. I think he does something with customer service and he's like, I'm a people person and you you can't actually explain what you're doing, but you are doing something. There's always that person who is not necessarily doing the direct technical work. Sometimes they are, but you have that person who's sort of weaving everyone together and being the glue that, that, that guides it and holds it together. And it's really interesting how, how that works. Um, Look, my, my goal as a leader if I'm doing my job as a leader, I should be working myself out of a job. Yeah. I should not be the thing that everybody needs for the whole to move forward. If I'm empowering people the way I should be, if I'm doing what I should be, one, I should be creating other leaders. But two, yeah. I should be able to leave tomorrow and have everything be okay. Um, I can't stand sitting with somebody that's left a leadership position and they're talking to say, yeah, well, that place fell apart after I left because they needed me. And I'm like, well, well what did you do? <laughs> you know, yeah. if you did your job, you should be saying, wow, that place is still just rocking and rolling. They're moving right along. Yeah, there's so many different ways. And I think this is true at all levels of leadership as well. When you're a teacher or you're a therapist, you should work yourself out of a job too, eventually. I mean, yes, at some point your support is needed, but then it's the whole idea of fading yourself out of the situation, leaving right, leaving right. the place better than when you found it. I would love to hear about, so there's a couple of things that you said in your book and a couple analogies that you use that I thought were really interesting. When people ask what do you want me to do? You mentioned that that's a sign that they're, they might not be as engaged as you want. So why is that the case? What is a question that they should be asking? Okay. So yeah, this comes from, this comes from a conversation that I've had multiple times with my, with my kids. Um, Instead of saying, can I help? Because then people have the opportunity to say no. Or, and when you say, can I help? And I don't, I don't want to make anybody think anything, but how many times, like really, if we look in the mirror, how many times have we said, can I help with something to somebody? And we're like, please don't ask me to do anything. I'm really not interested in helping. But instead, being specific with it, 
saying, what can I do to help? So that they have to give you an answer that gives you a job. It's a very subtle but very important twist on words. So if I go to a teacher, so like I have I have 15-minute meetings every year um, at the mid-year with all the teachers in my building. And it's based around them evaluating me. And I let them know, uh, the ones that have been there now know what they're about, so I don't have to repeat that. But for new teachers that might be a little worried about why they're sitting with me for 15 minutes at the mid-year, um, I tell them this is all about this is all about me. You're you're evaluating me. I'm I'm responsible for observing, evaluating, giving feedback to everybody in the building. How fair is that that you don't give get a chance to give me your feedback about what I'm doing and evaluate me on how I'm doing um, in your viewpoint? And so I ask them, you know, what am I doing currently that I need to continue doing? In other words, what's working for you? What am I doing that I need to stop doing? In other words, you know, Jones, stop it. It's not working. Um, But the last one, I use that subtle difference. I say, what is something that I can do for you right now that will make your life either easier or better? And the answers I get range everywhere from... um, one person asked me for an extra box of magnetic poetry because that works for her in her classroom. So I, I got her a box of magnetic poetry. Actually, I got her two boxes because that's what I do. But I um and another another teacher, I gave a clicker because she wasn't getting out and moving around. And she's a newer teacher. She wasn't getting out moving around um, among her students enough because she was she had to keep going back and clicking her slides. So I got her a clicker. So she could stand anywhere in the room and click her slides forward when she was showing kids different things. Um, but by asking specifics, when you get into specifics about what is it you need from me, the answer can't be, no, I'm fine. It, it's got to be something if they're going to answer the question. So when I ask you, what is it I can help with? You're not going to say, no, I'm fine. That even if there's a hesitation, they go, well, I don't, well, you know, oh, could you move that desk over here? It's something. And now you're involved and you're doing just, even if it's something small, you're helping support them. And if you do the same to somebody else, it's making them feel as if they're part of the process and that they're being a help instead of just standing there. How often does the first thing that they suggest, because I think some, I bet that takes people off guard when they hear it the first time. I mean, they're not expecting it. They are probably expecting, can I help? The, the That's almost like when you're, you see somebody on the street and you're making small talk and you say, how are you? And then someone actually starts to tell you how they are and you're <laughs> expecting them yeah. to say, I'm fine. And then yeah. it's weird because they're actually telling you all of those things. I've been that person who's launched into how I'm doing when they really just were making small talk and they don't really want to know how I'm doing. <laughs> right, right. So right. when you reshift it, it does, it does, I think, seem more like you actually are curious about how you can help. How often does that lead to other things? Because now they're really thinking about it. They're not going to give you the cop out. No, I'm fine. And not thinking about it right. because they... For whatever reason, I think that sometimes people just aren't expecting that question. And so they don't have an answer readily available. Does that lead to other things? So let's say that they ask you for something really simple, like poetry or something that is just a very small thing. Does that lead to other things once that you do that first thing? In, it, in the least, 100% of the time, it extends the conversation. So when I say, you know, how can I help or what do you need from me? 
um, 100% of the time, the conversation continues. So I remember the, just to go with the magnetic poetry thing, it led into a conversation about different things this teacher was doing in her classroom to engage the students in different ways and how she worked the magnetic poetry into her classroom. So that was a conversation. She didn't come up with something else that she did on top of that. But just about every time, teachers will come up with something that they can use, just something small. And I tell them, some of them I give a hard time to, you know, and as you build relationships, the conversation's obviously um, a little different and a little easier going back and forth and casual. But some I give a hard time to and say, I'm going to ask you to do something incredibly difficult right now. I'm going to ask you to not think of your students or somebody else instead of yourself first. What is it you need from me? What can I do for you? And that will get them thinking about, oh, I could use a little bit of this. And, you know, then there's the jokes. I'm, I just ran out of money and time. But, um, you know, they they always come up with something. It could be anywhere from something as small as a clicker magnetic poetry to, you know, I'd really like to get into somebody else's class, but I can't seem to do that. Um, to where then maybe I can get coverage for their class period. It also has led into, you know, I'd really like time to work with this teacher or do something like that. And that's a bigger issue that then at least I'm aware of and we can work into moving forward and to take that into account or use in some other fashion. It's, you know, kind of like, okay, well, who else here would like to have some time to work with this teacher? Of course, tons of hands are going to go up. So that's an issue now that we need to think about moving forward and scheduling um, or how we put our master schedule together. Yeah. I mean, that's really what I was getting at was just, you know, the, the idea that it could extend the conversation. I'm going to take a quick break here and talk a little bit about the School of Clinical Leadership, my program for related service providers who want to take a leadership role in implementing executive functioning support. If you are supporting students who are getting referred for behavior problems or problems learning and following along in class, it can be difficult to know where to start when it comes to empowering teachers to make changes in their classroom. This is something that has come up a lot in my conversation with Dr. Jones with figuring out how to guide people in a way that feels empowering to them so that they can move forward and see success. Coming up in this conversation, we're going to talk about the concept of breaking things and putting them back together. Doing this effectively and getting support implemented across the day in your building does require a paradigm shift, and it does require you to rethink the way that you approach your role and approach the way that you provide services. And I help you do this in the School of Clinical Leadership. You can be a leader no matter what your job title is. You can learn more about the School of Clinical Leadership at drkarendudekbrandon.com backslash clinical leadership. Now let's get back to the conversation. On that same line of empowering people, can you share a little bit about your the analogy that you described in your book with just the idea of building a cathedral and just the different levels when, you know, it's, are we... Uh, do you know what I'm talking about? Yep, yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's about a vision. One person, one Mason, it's the cathedral, three uh, Masons, and it's an older story. So I'm sure I'm going to um, mess up some version of something that somebody heard um, <laughs> or recalling it from memory. I'm sure I'm probably not going to say it exactly as I wrote it in the book, but it's three Masons you come across are um, working on a cathedral and you ask each one what they're doing. And one says, you know, I'm, I'm cutting this stone to make this over here. 
the next one you go to says, you know, I'm I'm building this wall. I'm I'm being part of building this wall. And the third one you get to says, we're building a cathedral and sees themselves as part of that bigger, long lasting picture. And anybody that's read any history books or looked into how long cathedrals took to build, um, specifically in the Middle Ages, you know, people, masons would work on them and they'd never see the end of the cathedral because it took longer than their life to build. And um, it it talks about the idea of where people's vision is and what they're focused on. Are they focused on, and when I look at it, are, are they focused on just themselves and their world and their classroom? Are they are they focused on, on and I say just, just the school, right? Everybody thinks, well, if I focus on the school, yeah, I'm really moving forward. Or are they focused on the overall outcome of students, of all students that attend that school and the bigger picture? So it's about each picture becoming bigger and them seeing themselves as part of that and a valuable part of it. Um, the person that's just making the stone, yeah, okay, they're they're cutting smaller blocks out of bigger blocks. They don't really see why or understand why. And it's just it's just the everyday. And it's easy for a person like that to become very disengaged. Mm-hmm. And when something comes up, a roadblock, a hardship, you lose them. The person building the wall out of all these stones, well, they see themselves as doing something bigger. And so they stay engaged longer and they, you know, they may start to feel a little empowered because they're making this thing that's bigger than just their contribution. They're part of a larger system. Well, the person building cathedral is empowered. They're making decisions. They see the larger picture as they go. They're becoming leaders in their own right to step forward and make something grander than themselves. Just like we were talking earlier when I said, you know, the idea of a leader is to work themselves out of a job because it's not about me. It's not about the other leader. It's it's about what goes on in the bigger picture to where I should be able to remove myself and it goes on and it goes on and makes things better for everybody involved. The students, once they leave school, I, I, you know, I, I hate the idea of when you get out into the real world, we should be making schools like the real world uh, so wow. that, right? That's a whole other conversation. <laughs> yeah, we could do a whole other podcast show on that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so it's it's about the larger impact you're making. Yeah. I It reminds me of something, I think I read it in some leadership book where um, they were talking to a custodian. It's, do they say, you know, I'm taking out the trash or do they say, I'm keeping this building clean so that students can learn. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's, that's what it's all about. You know, are, are, are you just teaching students grammar or are you teaching them how to better express themselves? Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's that subtle again, why is it that uh, so many important differences in how we approach things are subtle, but so important. Yeah. The language and the questioning is really important. I think with it's it's important across the lifespan and at every level of leadership, whether it's the principal who's talking to the teachers, whether it's the the teacher or the therapist talking to the students. It I mean that that concept of shifting your language when somebody is in the middle of a difficult task and you're getting them to think about the steps 
but also when you're not wanting to do the steps for them. And yes, yeah, sometimes they need you to model it if they really, you know, they, you sometimes they need that. They need you to tell them step by step what to do, but it can't be like that the whole time. You have to phase yourself out eventually. <laughs> you know, it's it that reminds me, and you bringing up the um, the piece about the cathedral. I, I tell another story in my book um, about the the I think it's the rabbi who he's this world famous rabbi, and he has a visitor come see him. And this visitor comes to see him from the U.S. and the rabbis in Europe. And the man from the U.S., you know, this this gentleman has all the answers that he could ever, ever dream of. And so he goes to visit him, goes up to the house where he lives in the apartment building, gets up to his apartment and enters the room. And there's nothing. And again, I'm paraphrasing, just going really quickly, enters the room and there's hardly any personal belongings in the room. With this, with this rabbi that's sitting there. And he's world famous. And the man is actually taken aback. And he says to him, he says, you're, you're, this famous, you're this famous individual who gives the best advice and leads people to greatness. Where are all your belongings? Like, this is, a, this is a, an ornate building, but when I get to the room that you're in, it's plain and there's nothing here. And the man looks back at him and he says, well, he said, you're here. Where are all your belongings? And the man retorts back to him. He says, well, I'm just passing through. And the rabbi looks at him and he says, so am I. So am I. And it it speaks to the idea that we are all just passing through. And so when we look at the big picture, we're better able to grasp that than get tangled up in the small everyday things that come up that will derail us if we give them the attention to do so. And we lose our focus on what we're actually trying to accomplish. Yeah. Oh, man. There's, I can think of so many different situations that that would apply to, um, especially when you're in a position of leadership or, and I, and I'm saying this as being in an official, you, you know, a principal, you're, you consider yourself to be in a leadership position. And I think that therapists and teachers should consider themselves to be in a leadership position as well. But understanding your long term goal and not getting sidetracked with all these things that come up. So another thing that you mentioned, just on the theme of just being teacher-centered versus being student-centered and just understanding how you can guide people to be able to understand their why you like to see if students can answer certain questions. What kind of questions do you like to see students being able to answer? I like students being able to answer questions that have to do with where their skill set is. When you can ask a student what they're good at and they can answer what they're good at or what they're interested in instead of falling back on the normal expected answers. Um, That's what I like to see. So for example, um, if I'm talking to a student and I say, you know, what do you want to do when you get out of here after, after high school? And they say to me, "Um, well, you know, I'm, I'm supposed to go to college and I'm supposed to go to do this or do this. I don't like to see answers like that. I like to see answers that are much more, reflective of um, 
more thought that they've done about themselves as a person. I'm I'm not so much interested in what somebody's going to be or do as much as I am in who they are going to be, because that's what's going to carry them through life. We live we live in an age where you have a chance to change what you want to be or who you want to be multiple times um, throughout the course of your life. And if you don't have a, a thoughtful understanding of who you are as a person or who you want to be, you're going to struggle um, with finding success wherever you go. Because I talk about one of the things I talk about with students, and this has become a larger concept for me, but it started, I still remember the place that it started for me, but it, it started with keeping kids in school. So we have meetings with students that, you know, think about dropping out or want to drop out and don't continue their school. And I tell them that it's about keeping doors open. That's what, that's what life is about. Um, and by default, as we grow older, certain doors, and these are doors of opportunity, certain doors close. It's just what happens because we make certain decisions. We move on to different aspects of our life. So those doors close to us. And once a door closes, it closes forever. One of the things that we need to make sure we're doing is as we go through life, we go through life in such a way that we are thoughtful and keep as many doors open as possible for as long as possible. Because once we get to a certain point in our life, we may not like doing what we're doing. But if we have a clear understanding of who we are, we can easily shift to something else. Like, I, I thoroughly enjoyed being a coppersmith. I, something about working with my hands, that finished product, that molding. Um, great. I like that. Well, eventually, I got a little tired of that. And I said, well, let's see if I can branch out and do something else because I am interested in doing this. And it was that broader understanding of what, what impact I wanted to make in life. Um, that led me to that. I have two sons and it's funny because I get some questions sometimes because they both, one just got accepted into it, but they both go to a vocational technical school. Now I'm the, I'm the leader of a public high school. Um, there's always that fight between public high schools and folk tech high schools about funding and political stuff and all that, where people look at me and they say, what, what are you kidding me? You're too, you sent your two kids to a Vogue Tech high school? I said, absolutely, because they know who they want to be. And that looks to be, at this point, the part that is going to help them move forward more. Because they've questioned themselves. They've examined themselves about what, what brings their passion alive, what makes them happy in life. Um, obviously, still looking forward to what you can do for a career. But if somebody follows what works for them in life based on who they are, they're not going to run into a problem because they're going to find themselves in a situation where they can be who they are. And that's going to lend itself to the most success. That is another topic. The whole, the whole idea of <laughs> high school, traditional academic path. I have definitely followed a very traditional path. And I think that was the right path for me. But it is really easy to default into that because it's just what you're used to. And there's so many different right. things you can do. And you can do something like, you know, you can go to a vocational school and maybe you decide later that you want to go a different direction. You can go back to school and you can do that, too. You, right. There's so many different ways that you can do it. I, I know so many people who made a decision based on 
just the path that they were familiar with or went to a four-year college right away when they were 18. And for whatever reason, it could be maturity. It could be because they didn't know what they want to do. It just didn't make sense for them to do that. And I think you have to start having those conversations when kids are younger, even in high school. And like you said, um, they're the, the the topic of academic versus varied experiences in high school and, and even in um even in elementary school, that's that could be a whole other episode. Okay. We should do a series. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I'm just thinking my my brain is going in so many different directions. And I know that we are getting close to the end here. Um I well, we have to talk about Kintsugi before we wrap up yeah. here because you know, we we were having this conversation prepping for this this show and um, and a couple other things that we're doing together, and that came up. And I really like that it tied into some other conversations we had about the idea of finding cracks in things and helping that to shine the light in and being okay with having this thing that we've created and breaking it so that we can rebuild it. I don't know about you, but I one of my cognitive distortions of choice is the sunk cost fallacy where it's, but I built this thing and it's already made and it's a waste if I just take it apart and rebuild it. And I think that a lot of people get stuck in that at all levels. So can you share a little bit about how you have applied, what what Kintsugi is, how you use it in the way that you work sure. with your staff and just life in general? <laughs> <laughs> sure. I've got, man, I've got example after example. Oh, I'm yeah. great at breaking things. <laughs> no, no, I, uh, Kintsugi is an ancient Japanese art form. And, um, it's, if, if you don't know what it is and you haven't looked it up, just go on Google search and look up some images. And it, it really is beautiful. Um, what it is, is, is breaking pottery and putting it back together with they usually use like a gold filling mm-hmm. um, as a joiner or a silver filling as a joiner, and it just what it does is highlight that from our cracks, from our defaults, um, from our uniqueness as individuals. That's what makes us beautiful, and that's what that's what is the strongest aspect of us. And before Kintsugi, it was the idea of welding, because I've, I've worked with metal and things like that, or soldering joints together with copper. When you break two pieces of metal and you weld them together, that's the strongest part of that metal, is that weld um, that has fixed that default. Um, so the idea of Kintsugi is, it, it's funny because I, I tell my assistant principal this all the time. My assistant principal... Um, is so skilled in an area that I'm not as skilled in, and that's logistics. He loves puzzles. This guy does puzzles um, for fun outside of work. But I can have an issue, look at him and say, hey, I want to do this with the school. I think this is a good idea. I can't figure out how to make it happen. He'll go home, and he'll come back the next day with like three different scenarios about how we can fit it into the schedule, different things like that. Kintsugi um, is the act of having a problem And it first came to us where I I utilized it during COVID. We were trying to figure some stuff out. Um, And it had to do with scheduling and how we're going to have teachers teach. It's when half the school's in, half the school's out, so forth. Without going crazy into details, anybody that's been there gets it. Um, But I looked at him, and he tried and tried and tried to figure it out. And I was standing in his office, and he looked at me, and he said, Chris, I "I I just can't figure this out. 
And I said, well, what we need to do is some kintsugi. And he looks at me, he goes, what do you mean kintsugi? <laughs> and I go, kintsugi, ancient Japanese art form, you break pottery, put it back together, and it's, it's awesome. And he said, I, I'm not sure I'm following. And I said, what we need to do is take what we have, the structure that we have, we need to break it. He goes, what do you mean break it? I said, just smash it. Forget it. We're trying to figure out a solution within the structure that we've created. Well, clearly, if we don't have an answer, we're not going to be able to do that because we're living in the world that we created. So we need to break that, get outside of the structure that we've created to create a new structure. And so we talked about it a little bit and laughed about the weird idea of Kintsugi and how we could apply that to education. And lo and behold, he came back to me the next day and he had three answers. He said, I just, I just tore it all apart. What if we did this, 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 and just started moving everything everywhere and came up with an answer. Whenever you have a problem that seems so tangled and a mess, it's often because we've constructed answers based on issues that we've had. So our final product that we're looking at is more a series of band-aids than it is a, a solution. And so what we need to do is just smash that whole thing and come up with a solution that works based on the problem that we have. Not try and put another Band-Aid on it, because eventually, as we all learn, there are no more Band-Aids to fix the issue. So when you break it, you put something together that works, and suddenly you look at it, it's like, where have you been all my life? Um, and it's a, it's a beautiful solution that works for the issue at hand. And then what you find is it's almost a reset, because then we had to adjust. But now when we look at problems, we don't just slap a band-aid on it and say this is going to work. We look at it, and now we've expanded our world into something bigger and not that narrow construct that we've always lived in because we realize that if it comes down to it, we can break whatever we have and create something that will work for us. Now, do we try? Do we walk around with a hammer looking for a nail? No. But we do look at problems not saying – here's another subtle language change. We don't look at problems and say, if only – right? Because that's a negative. We look at problems and say, what if? So we'll worry about the back end later. We have to get the solution first, because then we ask ourselves, what would this look like if it were easy and it were working right? And then we can backfill in a solution for it instead of trying to figure out something to get somewhere that's not even really too well defined. So many different places you could apply that. <laughs> it's uh, the the thing that I have heard people say is fall in love with the problem, not the solution. Because mm. a lot of times we're very attached to the solution, whether it be because, again, you've, you've done all this work. That's That's really hard to do for some people where you feel like you have to, you've made this thing, so you have to use it. Where... Maybe, but maybe there's it's uh, a better use of your time to break it and start over. And maybe some of those things that you created did lead you to where you ended up. Well, everything led you to where you ended up. Yeah. Right? So yeah. it's not like you're throwing them out because if you never experienced them or used them, you probably wouldn't be in a position where you could get rid of them to make a better solution. Yeah. So it's not that you're turning your back on something. It's that something has has reached the end of its usefulness. And so you just need to move on to something else. It's it's funny. I don't know. You know, and that is a mindset because we take things very personal. And oh, that's yeah. that's, a, that's a human trait. Mm -hmm. I, I remember 
maybe this is where I got some of it. <laughs> Getting my doctorate, I was in the writing process, and and you can you can um, probably relate to this. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I got some feedback back one time, and I was ecstatic. I was like, "Oh, this is this isn't that bad at all." So I grab my paper and I go and I sit down next to my wife on the couch because she knew that I was meeting with my advisor and all this. And she's sitting there. She goes, "Geez, how'd it go?" And I said, oh, not bad at all. And I opened up the first page. She looked at me. She goes, are you kidding me? There was red all over (laughs) for corrections that I needed to make and questions and things like that. She goes, you got brutalized on that paper. Now, my wife's an English teacher. She goes, you got brutalized on that. And I was like, oh, no, no, this isn't that bad. What it taught me through the process was not to get married to anything. It just it is what it is. And people have their opinions, but the idea is to just continually improve on what you have. And by default, you're going to have to get rid of some things. And you're going to have to accept that they, that you get rid of them and not anguish over a personal loss every time you have to change from one thing to another. That is something. So I'm mentoring doctoral students right now that I, the idea of of just taking feedback and this is a process I just, I, I feel like I need to hammer that home just to, just to prep them for what's right. coming because, oh my gosh, when you come up with this draft and you see all of the red, it's like, <gasps> and it is different now because we're giving feedback electronically. I actually would, what I would do is that I would make comments, but then I would record a loom video and I would do that to soften the comments because I understand what it's like when people give written feedback it sounds really aggressive. And I write a lot. And when you write a lot, it comes across like, whoa, I I just I know from somebody who's given feedback on those types of things that it comes off very critical. So I always think about that. And I I don't want to get off topic with that. But this reminds me of something that I think it was Neil Gaiman. Um, Do you know who he is? He wrote Coraline. Um, Oh, what's the other? He's he's a he's a uh, he writes novels, um, so very creative. He was talking about creative process where what he used to do is that he would write his first draft in like actual on notebook paper. And then when he would transfer it over to a written document and he would have to cut stuff out, it would actually be less work for him to not put it in versus you already wrote it out and now you're deleting it. So for him, it felt like, that process of breaking the draft and putting it back in was actually less work than you wrote it down in a written document and now you have to take it off. That feels like Mm. lack. And the other one feels like, oh, here's this thing that is um, less work for me. And I thought that was a really interesting reframe. And I always wonder if there's ways that we can look at things like that as, you know, um, it's not, we're not actually, it's not a waste that we did that. It's it's actually something that we're just using going forward. I thought that was just, I think that's always useful to find ways you can reframe it. But there are times when you just have to accept that that things are different now. The, the whole idea of things, they were useful and now they're not. You know, just right. the world changes. It doesn't mean it was a waste of time. It just means that things are different now. Like, I can just think of so many different examples, um, you know, 
blockbuster, <laughs> for yeah. example, you yeah. know, yeah. I mean, yeah. they were doing really well for a while. Was it a waste of time that they were doing what they were doing? No, but things change, right. you know? So I don't know. There's, there's so many different examples of how um, the world is just different. Shopping malls, you know, remember right. when that was just the, the cool hit place to be. And now we have Amazon and it's just, it's different now. Um, yeah, we could go on and on. Well, do you have any, before we wrap up, I know we've talked about a lot of different things. Um, any other bits of advice for, I would say, people who are in a position where they want to feel more empowered? What's uh, what's the best parting advice that you can give to them that we haven't already discussed? Ooh, people that are in a position and they want to be more empowered. Um, I think the best the best thing they can do is find the person that would be responsible for them being empowered because there's nothing worse than somebody taking that step. And this has to do with the flywheel that I explain in my book. Mm-hmm. Then a person taking that step and being not supported or pushed down mm-hmm. um, yeah. when they get in power, because then, then you get the negative feelings. You don't just get the negative feelings of, Oh, I failed at that. Which inevitably, if you're trying to step outside of your comfort zone, it's going to happen. And that's when you need the support to to get back on the horse, so to speak. But they have the negative feeling of what's the point. And so when you're when you have that self-talk, you're defeated before you even start. And there's there's no way you can be successful. So the first thing or the most important thing to do is see who could be responsible for supporting you and being empowered. Now that could be that could be a department chair, that could be a curriculum coordinator, an assistant principal, whatever title you're looking at, or that person that can do that. The the second most important thing is to to do it, to go to this person with an idea and say, hey, I was thinking about this, how we could change this to make it better. Um, I had this idea about how we might be able to reach these types of students. Um, you know, looking at what we were working on the other day, I think if we expanded this program to a larger group, I don't know what it would look like, but I think it could be helpful to a larger group of students. Come with some idea that you've thought up um, that gives you that piece of empowerment to move it forward. Because if somebody comes to me personally as a leader and says, hey, um, you know, I've got this idea and I think we might be able to do this. My first response to them is, I, well, I think about it and I say, okay, that's good. Have you thought about this? And I'll think about maybe one thing that maybe they haven't thought of because they just, that's not in their purview. And then I'll say, run with it. Let's see what we can do because they have an idea. So if it's a well enough thought out idea that it looks like you've already done some work on it, perfect, run with it. Um, So make sure you're talking to the right people. Make sure you have a well thought out idea or thing that you want to be empowered with and, and take that step. It's going to be scary at first and you're going to fall down at first, but just take that step. Yeah, that's good. I I love the idea of it being well thought out because if you're thinking about the position that the person you're going to is in, they, you know, if someone were approaching you, wouldn't it be nice if they've already done their Kintsugi and said, here, I broke (laughs) this and I put it back together and here are some possibilities and which one would you like me to run with or what would be the you know best direction for me to go? And they've yeah. already thought it out. 
because that's sometimes that in of itself is scary when, and you know, to all the people that are in a position to empower somebody, when they come to you, especially if they come to you with like two ideas, don't just say to them, well, what do you think? Because that's kind of scary, especially for somebody stepping out for the first time. Do them the solid of saying, you know, well, which one did you think of first? Why did you think of this one? What's best about this? Ask a few clarifying questions and then say to them, well, I think it'd be a good idea. Why don't you run with B? Um, And that gives them, so let's bring this full circle, right? That gives them the clearly defined goal, but it gives them the guardrails um, by giving them a path to that goal and then let them do it based on their own creativity and their own process. Yeah. Love it. Okay. Well, we could keep going, but um, (laughs) we we probably should at some point, but where can people connect with you, find more, uh, find out more about you and where can they find your book? Um, They can find my book at seeingtolead.com, which brings them to a website that they can get the book off of there. They can um, get bulk orders for um, any kind of book study. I actually have a book study Man, I wish I had the link because it just went up and signups are almost done for it. But I'm doing a quick book study in May. Um, but uh, they can order bulk for book studies or for um, me talking to them or whatever they want to do with it or sign copies. But other than that, you can find it anywhere, you know, Amazon, anything mm-hmm. like that. We had mentioned Amazon earlier. Yep. And they can find me anywhere on social media. I'm pretty much... Um, Dr. C.S. Jones, so D.R.C.S. Jones on all social medias. But uh, my go-to is usually Twitter. Okay. I try Instagram, and I struggle with Instagram. <laughs> and, uh, um, and I do have a Facebook page as well. So Okay. All right. Well, we'll link to all those in the show notes. Well, thank you so much for being here with me today. Well, thank you. I really appreciate you having me on. I enjoyed talking to you. You too. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure that you check the show notes for all of the resources and places you can go to connect with Dr. Jones. And also be sure to check out his podcast. I am a guest on his show and we talk about the concept of shifting from planning for therapy to planning for service delivery. It goes along with the concept of breaking and rebuilding things so that you can make things stronger. So definitely check it out. It was a great conversation. Well, that's a wrap, but not the end. Next step, be sure to take action on something you heard here today. Hey, thanks for listening to the Scene to Lead podcast. If you would like to connect for any reason, email me at drchrissj at gmail.com or catch me on Twitter at drcsjones. If you've gotten any value from the Scene to Lead podcast today, you can help me and other leaders create a world-class environment through a teacher-centric approach by subscribing to the show leaving an honest rating and review and sharing this episode on social media with your most valuable takeaway. Also, one last thing. Have you had a chance to pick up my latest five-star rated book yet? Grab your copy of Seeing to Lead anywhere you buy books or at seeingtolead.com. That's S-E-E-I-N-G-T-O-L-E-A-D.com. 
where you can learn more and continue to improve. Now go have a successful week.